I like to remind people from time to time to think of meditation as something that happens more with your body than with your mind. And if you comprehend what this means, you understand that meditation is not a mental exercise. It's not a physical exercise either, as much as it is a way of accessing intelligently the wisdom of both body and mind together and one of the ways that we can do that is by starting to pay a greater attention to the body which doesn't mean analyzing your body or interpreting your body or even thinking about your body as much as just feeling the presence of your limbs, where you notice contraction or tightness in your body to relax if possible, to perhaps take a fuller and deeper breath, one where your belly becomes a little bit free as you breathe into it. You use more of your lungs And so by orienting to your body, primarily, you are automatically orienting to the present moment because this is your present experience of your body. And let's not underestimate how precious that is. Because it's very easy for us, in a sense, to throw away our attentiveness to the present in favor of a thought about past or future. And so by reinstating your attention to the present moment and your body, you're beginning to act as though what's happening right here and right now is the most important thing. Granted, it may not initially seem like the most important. But just for a little while, in the 20 or so minutes that we are sitting quietly, to begin treating your experience as though what's happening now is significant. And being a witness to that significance. We all know that we cannot hang on to the moment, to the now. But we can perceive it. 
in real time as it's really happening. So I would suggest as you relax and as you make contact with your body to also be the seer. The one seeing your body, your feelings, your emotions. And all the myriad things that are going on around you. To be the seer at the center of it all. If you're not carefully attending to your body and, in, and to the present right in front of you, you will find your way into habitual thought streams or ways of perceiving or storylines. And I would just say that as you find yourself in one of these eddies, that you reassert your contact with the moment at hand. And your body is very useful for that. Because your body is what's happening maybe most noticeably in the present. And who you are now is a lot more significant and real than the you you have as a story in your mind. And that's worth paying attention to. So the question we might ask, and it's a profound question, within the quietness of our meditation, 
is not only who am I or what am I, but what am I now, right now, right here. possible that you'll try to answer that question mentally. Stop. It won't work. Answer that question experientially. This is not something we are normally trained to do, but it's what our meditation is for. To answer this question, what am I experientially? And so for this question to be answered, I would invite you not to simply plug in an answer that you have known before, even if the answer is right, but to look again and see.
And maybe we go just a step further than perceiving the present moment and being what you are experientially into a taste of appreciation, a taste of holding yourself and your experience reverently as though sitting here in quietness is actually a very meaningful activity. And that it's important. And that what you are is important. And that what you're a part of is important. Notice what happens when you begin treating the present moment reverently. When you engage it with a sense of wakefulness and attention.
the stream of the present moment doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. We either stop our attention to it or we continue our attention to it. And the good fortune for each of us is that we can continue our attention to it at any time. And bring ourselves to real time, which is always now, always here. So don't think of your meditation as a a period of practice that lasts a certain amount of time. See it as an entrance into the river of the present, of which you are aware and which is made of awareness. And just to continue along being awake. Being attentive to what's here, what's now, and also to what's meaningful and to what you are. Knowing that there is no place to be what you are aside from right now. Maybe a part of you smiles with that recognition. Maybe a part of you delights in the freedom of it, the beauty of it, the simplicity of it. So I'll ring the bell, but don't look at it as the end. Look at it as just an event in the stream, just a a moment within this flowing stream of now. 
to be appreciated just like any other phenomenon. So the way our time together works is that we spend our first while sitting mostly quietly in, in what we call meditation because we don't have a better word for it, really. I mean, we could call it prayer, but then probably nobody would show up. <laughs> but the second part of our gathering is not really any different except that we're adding words and language and ideas. And hopefully you devote just about 10% of yourself to that, while the other 90% of you is still devoted to the stream of presence that's taking place, which will probably make, you know, if 90% of you is devoted to that, then you'll probably see the 10% of words and everything else is just blah, 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 blah. <laughs> you'll hear me talking and that's all you'll hear is blah, 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 blah. Which would be a good thing, actually. Because you'll be with what matters. Sometimes it's a ridiculous thing, but it's almost as if we're all in a raft together and I'm jumping to the shore to say, hey, look, you're in the, you're in the raft. <laughs> it's just a bizarre activity, but one I maybe morbidly enjoy. Twelve years ago, when I first joined the community here at Flow, there was a party, a kind of party, I don't know if you call it a party, maybe it's not a party in your mind, but, and I don't remember what the idea was behind it, but we were coming together and doing yoga practice, and then afterward there was food and some games and prizes and things like this. And I was brand new to the community. I had just been invited to teach maybe a, a week or two prior. So I didn't know anybody in the community, and I hadn't really spent any time at Flow at all. So. And I really didn't understand Hood River in the least because I was living at a spiritual center and had hardly any contact with Hood River as a place or culture. And... Uh, at this gathering after the practice, I bumped into a, a guy who um, we just were, you know, kind of striking up small talk. And he said, what do you do? And my default was to tell him of my living situation and then tell him that I was unemployed at that moment. And he said, no, no, what sports do you do? Right, which now makes perfect sense to all of you who live here. I was like, why you heard that question? But it was an odd question for me to, like, at the time, not knowing 
really how big the sports scene was in Hood River. It was sort of like, what? So I just kind of sat there a little bit baffled, trying to understand the question. Like, why? You know, you don't hear what sports do you do very often outside of this community. And so I didn't, really didn't understand it at all. And I just kind of, I think I must have just been like, I, I don't really do sports, you know. Which immediately drew an awkwardness to the conversation because our ground for relating then was very small. <laughs> I mean, it was actually pretty big because we're both human, we're both, we were both men, but in that moment it became very small and that was, I think, apparent to both of us. And so I said, I don't, I don't do any sports. And he said, well, what do you do? And I didn't know how to answer that question either, really. And I said, well, I spend most of my time meditating and doing spiritual practice. And immediately he chuckled and he said, why would you do that? Why would you do that? And I didn't, know, I, you know, I didn't know what to say to that question. It was sort of like, how do you tell someone who doesn't know why you do that, why you do that? And uh, I must have fumbled around for an answer. And I think I found it today. <laughs> I think I found it today in what I was saying to you in the meditation. Um, because for some reason, in the midst of cueing the things I was cueing, that scene popped into my awareness, and it was like, I've got the answer now, so maybe I should call him up and <laughs> let him know, let him know why. Um, but I think his question is also a very useful one, like, why are you doing that? You know, what, what the heck do you want to sit still and do nothing for? You know, and for all intents and purposes, to sit still and do nothing would be the antithesis of a well-lived life because we mostly associate a well-lived life with doing as much as possible or accomplishing as much as possible or having as many experiences as possible. So there's very little interest if we're looking with, let's call them worldly eyes for a moment, and we're looking with worldly eyes for why, why to meditate. You know, But I think we maybe captured it just a little bit today in describing our uh, ability to have an affinity for the present moment. And not just in an empty, <coughs> sterile way. All too often when I hear people talk about being present or presence, it's very sterile. It's like, I need to learn to be present. But there's no like life in it. It's just sort of like uh, something you learn you're supposed to do. And I really disagree with that way of seeing things. I really think it's unproductive and unhelpful. Because if you don't understand why the present moment is valuable, it's very unlikely that you're going to want it enough to actually practice being present. You know? But I think in our meditation we're describing today a little bit why it's, why it's useful and even more than useful necessary. Because this is where your life is happening. And it's not happening anywhere else. You have no life aside from what's happening right now. I understand you have past experiences living in you as memories. I understand you have ambitions living in you as things you want to do and accomplish. But the reality of your life is none other than this moment right now. And as long as we are intent on ignoring that, we are intent on ignoring our life where it is. You know? And I personally find that unacceptable. Not because I'm... Just... 
It's not acceptable. <laughs> That's not an acceptable way for us to live. It's just not. It's not a pleasant way to live. And so our willingness, not ability, because our ability is certain, it's sure, but our willingness to unite with our life where it is and to begin to see that what's at hand, what is here right in front of us is truly important and meaningful and to give our whole life to what's at hand, I think is, is, is crucial. And I think it's reflected in, you know, the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus where he says, look at the lilies of the field. See how they toil not nor spin, right? And he says, but even Solomon arrayed in all of his glory was not, or Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. What does that mean? To me it means that you have in front of you a kingdom of experience that is full of life and existence and beauty and power and love. But if you're not participant in it, if you're not willing to show up and meet it, you don't experience any of those things. Right? I think it's a great tragedy when we start looking at spirituality in terms of a past and future lens. Especially if we say, you know, heaven is somewhere lying in the future, or even worse, the stupid idea that heaven is after you die. Or nirvana is to come. Uh, because the funny thing about our experience is that when we come to the kingdom, when nirvana is met, the cessation of the old is met, it's not other than the present moment in which it happens. And that's the funny thing. We, we laugh. I've, I've, I've seen it so many times, experienced it so many times. We laugh because we realize it was here all along. I just didn't see it. I just wasn't attentive to it. I wasn't there. I wasn't ready. I wasn't willing. And the laughter is not like I just found the greatest thing imaginable. It's the greatest thing imaginable was right here. And I was unaware of it. Today we speak about it as the present moment. But sometimes we speak about it in other ways. The value of seeing it as the present moment is in recognizing that it is the here-ness and now-ness of our experience that matters. That's not to say that we need to neglect the past or neglect the future. It's not to say that you live your life by this philosophy, eat, drink, and be merry, and only worry about now and forget everything else. Because that probably won't work out very well for you. But it does mean that where your life is happening is now. And if this moment doesn't matter to you, if this experience that you're having right now doesn't matter to you, it's very likely that tomorrow won't matter much to you either. I meet a lot of people because it's a big part of this town, this culture, where elaborate plans are made for wonderful activities. And what I hear from people so often is that right in the middle of that activity that they have planned that is so much fun, they're busy planning the next activity. You know? It's like, 
you're planning activities to give you the space to go plan other activities. Where's the enjoyment? When does that happen? You know? But for a person who can truly or willingly enter into the stream of presence that is their life, all the beauty is to be found. You know? Which ironically does something inside of you because all the plans you're making to experience the beauty that you experience in being present suddenly isn't out there, it's here. Which tends to change the way we view things. It tends to change the way we orient our life. Because our attempt at a fulfilling life then isn't out there. It's here. It's right, it's right here amidst us. And that tends to change the way we view things. It tends to change the way we act or behave. And luckily, thank God, there's no prescription for that. It's not like you and I are going to have the exact same experience and act in the exact same way because that would be a boring life. <coughs> but we get to discover what our life is and what it's for out of that recognition. <coughs> so let me stop there a little while and if you have thoughts or questions to contribute, we can see to those. So we're not just talking mundane, we're talking extraordinary on the other end of the spectrum. Yeah, okay. yeah. It's like gotcha. I mean, there's such a, for me, there's such a desire to sort of a la carte life and go, well, I just want the positive experiences. Sure. You speak for us all in that. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and then I, what happens is I start, like, becoming really disappointed in my, you know, day on the river because I really just did it to avoid feeling sad about something I'm not dealing with. And so I'm wondering if you have any tips or guidance on how to approach that aversion to those experiences without, you know, planning a new mega trip or like, like I feel like I'm really weak around experiencing painful thoughts and just sitting, you know, in difficult situations. Well, half of the suggestions that I would have, you've covered already in your interest and willingness, because those are the two most important factors, which is a way of saying, you know, there's something I know I'm avoiding here. Yeah. And when you know that, so it's one thing to know that, and then it's a step further to be interested and invested in facing and meeting those things, right? Um, so I think already half the battle is over in that, in what you already have available to you. I think what is needed, not necessarily for you, in, but in general, because to speak specifically to you, it would have to be a more intimate conversation, I think. But generally speaking, it is that willingness amplified to the point of recognizing that by facing that discomfort, pain, or horror uh, in the present moment, that there is something valuable that comes from that. And when we understand that there's something that valuable that comes from that, 
we're usually a lot more willing. And this has been proven in a more external way when you look at, so there's been actually scientific experiments done on this, or scientific research, psychological research, on a, a task that is assigned to a person who is uninterested in that task, and the same task by a person taking that up willingly. Take, for example, a weightlifter, right? If you're forced to haul 50-pound bags of sand for three hours in a specific motion, let's say, you'll complain and whine and moan and, and you don't want to do it. But if you believe that there's a benefit to lifting 50-pound bags of sand, such as getting yourself a couple of nice guns, you're a lot more willing to do it, right? What's the difference? The activity itself is the same. The difference is the willingness, right? So part of what we have to cultivate in us, and I, I refer to this as our true will, our true will has to be to face the things we don't want to face or to at least allow the things we don't want to allow to have a place to exist. Because in doing so, we are learning that very dictum, not my will, but thy will. In other words, here I am in the stream of the present moment, right? I'd like for it to be smooth water, but it's rough, right? The water is rough right now. And if I decide I'm going to jump out of the, the raft because I don't like the water that's present, I never have the experience of going down the river, right? So our willingness to, you could almost say it's a willingness to suffer, which I think is a very advanced principle within spiritual work is the willingness to suffer. Because we spend a lot of, you know, in the Hinayana, in the first part of the path, we spend a lot of it just trying to figure out how to fucking free ourselves from suffering. How the hell that can even happen. But I think in the second part of the journey, there's something of a willingness to suffer. And I think that, that our, our willingness to suffer shows our willingness to acknowledge that there's something more intelligent than we are that, that, mean, that knows, if you will, let's try not to personify God here, there's something of our experience that knows that even that painful, dreadful experience is necessary to us in some way. So it gravitates it. It draws it toward us. And our problem is not so much that the suffering is unbearable or the, the difficulty is so unwanted. It's that our resistance to it keeps it as something negative. And so when we allow our resistance to it to fall away, this painful thing comes closer. But as it comes closer, you begin to realize how it is a necessary step in evolving your consciousness beyond what's happening. So, you know, this is the thing I fail all the time to communicate to students, and I wish I didn't fail, because I, I see it, and especially among certain types of individuals, is they don't realize that by sticking with something difficult, they're about to realize something profound. And so they get to that difficult part, and it's like, I'm going to get out of the raft now. No, don't get, repeat that in yourself. Don't get out of the raft. Don't get out of the raft. That's the time where the raft is your greatest, your journey down the river is your greatest ally. And it's because just on the other side of facing that pain or difficult experience, there is something profound contained within it.
And, uh, you know, to get to the specifics of that, we would have to have a very specific conversation. But one example would be, one example would be uh, that, so it's common when people do spiritual practice to come upon a, an experience of, say, meaninglessness or pointlessness. They begin to realize that life feels kind of meaningless, pointless, hopeless. And we tend to react to that awareness pejoratively, negatively. We tend to think, that's not the want life I want. Let me figure out how to get rid of that. But it's always encroaching. It's always like there, you know. It's like you've avoided it, but you're washing your dishes and there it is in the window, you know. Or you're looking in the mirror and it's just behind you. It's always sneaking up on you, this sense of hopelessness and despair. And, you know, we're doing, with a lot of our life energy, we're focused on avoiding that. We're focused on getting ourselves away from that as much as possible. But if you were to stop viewing it as something so negative and allow yourself to actually encounter this sense of pointlessness and meaninglessness in an objective, open, clear, willing way, you might begin to discover that there's actually something intelligent about that recognition. Right? And that if you're not simply reacting to it emotionally, what you might discover, and this is a might, this is not the answer, is that what's meaningless and pointless and hopeless is the life you were living before, your past. And that what's really meaningful and the point of your experience and what's really matters is what's right now. This would be just one possible realization. You see, but if you don't ever face that pointlessness and hopelessness and meaninglessness, you never get that taste. Because your life energy is being spent avoiding it rather than noticing, right? Now, it would be nice if there was a formula that said, well, let's just get rid of that and come to appreciating the moment. But you see, here's the difficulty in that, is that, this is the last thing I'll say because I know I'm going on and on, but if we are fully attentive to the present moment, that must include everything that arises in our experience, right? In other words, we're not truly present if we're here selectively. Like, I'll be with my life when it's pleasant and good, but I won't be with my life when it's painful and hard. That's not life at all, right? So I think the key ingredients are willingness and, uh, what was the other thing I said? Willingness and um, awareness and interest. But then further than that is and you, we often have to take this on faith until we have the experience for ourselves, is that there's actually something profoundly positive on the other side of facing that thing. Yeah? That's the, that's the piece of vision. That's why, sometimes I get the question a lot, like why or is a teacher necessary? That's why I think a teacher is necessary. Because a teacher has done the same thing. They've met that same darkness and they've seen what's beyond it. And so the, you know, the teacher can say, look, you're good. Just keep going in this direction because what they know that what lies ahead, it's not unlike being with someone who's, who's traveled a territory and you come to a place on the map where you're like, I don't think I'm going in the right direction. And the person says, yeah, you are. Just keep going. You're good. Just keep going. Because that person knows what's on the other side of where you're at, right? And that's what we need in a good friend is we need someone who's, because if you take to your friend and you say, hey, there's this depression lurking on me, your friend is probably going to say, let's go ride bikes. 
or let's go have a beer. Which, if that's an invitation to connect and actually explore the depression that's sneaking up on you, great. But if it's a, if it's a friend who's trying to distract you from it, it's not such a good friend anymore. Because a good friend is going to steer you right into the mess, knowing that you're going to find your way to the other side of it. So I got carried away with that a little bit, but I think it's all very useful. Yeah, you should stay in the raft. Stay in the raft. Stay in the raft. Whenever it comes and you're thinking, I want to jump, stay in the raft. So on this side of the line, is it not also profound? It's just that we don't realize that it's profound what's happening. The, the being the Sorry, I'm not understanding. The living in the moment or the being with whatever it is. That yes, and mostly because of exactly what Mike's saying is that when a person, often when a person endeavors to actually show up to the present moment, it's not pleasant right away. And so we reject it as something we don't want. But if we were to say to ourselves, and this takes, because this operates with the optimizing thrust of reality. In other words, reality is always pushing the things to the surface that need to be liberated so that you can fully encounter the glory in front of you. And what will happen is in us is that you immediately open to presence and you're aware of being bored or you're aware of feeling depressed or your body hurts or you have a headache or someone just said something hurtful to you and now you remember it. And so you're, the, the immediate reaction is to somehow reject that, which means rejecting the present moment. And so we don't even get ourselves a half a second before we've already said no to it. So yeah, definitely, that when we're willing to stick with the experience of our presence, it, it unfolds something for us, often unpleasant. But that unpleasant is only a step. Seems like the step can be long. Because we have a lifetime of all this past accumulation of crap. Right? <clears throat> and, and, and maybe it could be instantaneous too. It is instantaneous. What makes it long is our resistance to it. You know, take for example, let's say I endeavor to be present. Let's say I'm going to intend to be present. And so I intend to be present. And the first thing I'm aware of is I'm bored, right? There's, maybe I've been bored a lot in my life. But in this rare opportunity or this moment, I can just simply let the boredom ride. I can simply let it happen, right? Which would be an entirely different way than dealing with that boredom all the hundred thousand other times I've experienced it. And in that one unique moment, it changes the whole legacy of boredom, just as it would if it were depression, fear, anxiety, tension, anger, confusion, you know, you go on naming them, right? Now, some seem to be harder than others, but that's only because your resistance to them is harder. Right? A deep, lifelong depression is not more difficult to face than an instance of boredom. Understand, I am being very precise in what I'm saying here. I understand it feels like that and seems like that, but it only seems like that because you have less resistance to the boredom than you do to this lifelong depression. Were you to eliminate all resistance, both experiences would be held or, or experienced in the same, with the same simplicity. You get that? Those of you who are practicing A Course in Miracles, that's a really good um, 
explanation of there's no order of difficulty in miracles. Right? But our, our resistance is well practiced. That's true. You know, we've, we've put up a lot of fight against certain parts of ourselves. And so those parts of ourselves are loaded. You know, they become what Jung called our shadow. They're the part of us that we've ignored and deprived. And what happens when you ignore and deprive something? You know, it becomes, what's the guy in the Goonies living in the basement? Chunk, no, Chunk is his friend that eats the candy bars. Isn't, isn't Chunk the, the kid? I don't know. You know who I'm talking about, though? The guy that gets locked in the basement and ignored. No, that's, that's, that's Pulp Fiction. <laughs> Whatever his name is. I don't remember his name. But you know who I'm talking about. right? Gets locked in the basement. And what becomes of him? He becomes this scary. I mean, he's actually not scary at all. He's very tender-hearted, But he's this scary, intimidating thing that's been deprived. And you know that's what becomes of the stuff you want to push away. Danger of what? Well, let's say I have a partner who's violent, and I stay, and I stay, and I stay, but it's harmful for me to stay in the raft with the person. You throw the tiger over the edge of the raft. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tiger's got to go. Yeah. Yep. Your raft is a solo raft. Okay. Yep. Yep. And please don't read too much into that simplified answer because I know that such a circumstance is very complicated. I'm not saying that it's as easy as just, well, just discard this person if they make you uncomfortable. It's not like that. It's like you're on a journey and if someone is interfering with that journey, they need to get out of the way. Really, they need to get out of the way and I don't mean that heartlessly at all. But if someone's interfering with your journey, and, and that's, a, that's alone, just that phrase. I'm almost nervous to even utter a phrase like that because there's so much you could misread into what I'm saying, but they've got to go. That's a good question. And I think it does relate very much to what Jackie is saying. And, um, you know, one of the things that we develop through our practice is our ability to be extraordinarily discriminating and attentive. And um, I think it, it could be dangerous so let's, let's take two sides of this, this coin because I think both sides will be valid. It could be dangerous if you're faced, let's say you're in an abusive situation of some kind. There's a lot of times where people believe that they're being abused and they're not really being abused. They just have a problem with being a victim. That happens. So if I were sitting here and, and, and knowingly someone was playing the part of a victim and saying, I'm being abused, and I said, well, 
get them out of your raft, I would be giving that person terrible advice because their real task is to overcome their sense of victimization, not to eliminate people that seem to be in their way. This is what gets really tricky about a group setting is that it's very difficult to address specific questions accurately unless we know more background. Now, on the other side of this would be, the other side of the coin, would be someone who has learned, don't run, don't leave, don't walk away from things that are difficult. And so you keep plugging yourself into the same horrible formula, thinking, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm hanging in there. I'm staying with a difficult situation. What is really difficult in us is to develop the discrimination to really clearly see and understand which of those techniques we happen to be using and, and how they're not serving us. For that reason, I really emphasize that people learn the Enneagram because when people learn the Enneagram, what they do is they come to an understanding of their specific techniques and strategies for suffering. And when you understand your specific techniques and strategies for suffering, you begin to understand that there's a habit to it, that you're doing it from a habitual place, and you start to understand why. Um, so whether you were staying in, a, in an abusive situation when you should be leaving, or you're staying, or you're trying to leave an abusive situation, or let's not say abusive, you're trying to leave a difficult situation when you should actually hang in there, that is something we learn. It, that's wisdom, really, is what it is. It's, wisdom teaches us. It's, what is that phrase on the um, AA? Grant me... God grant me the serenity, the prayer. serenity prayer. God grant me the wisdom to know the difference. Yeah, but what is the whole thing? Good. So the wisdom to know the difference is the discrimination that we're talking about right now. To know the difference between what you can change and what you can't. And when your wisdom is intact, your discrimination is intact, you understand that, right? So with it comes this clear knowing of when things need to be changed and when you need to hang in there, right? And one of the things I would suggest is that if we hang in there to the point where we free ourselves of the fearful impulse to leave or escape, if we hang in there long enough for that, we will come to that wisdom, and we will see whether or not it's right to change that circumstance or not. But, so that's, what, that's my basic suggestion, really, is that we have to be able to discriminate without fear. You know, I'm always a little bit nervous when I hear people say, uh, you know, I got bad vibes from that situation, and so I left. Because maybe the bad vibe you got was your own fear. You know, because sometimes the best possible thing for you feels scary, you know? Um, and I think your question borders on that, right? It's, it's on that, like, how do you discern? And I think there's a multiple pieces to that, which is, you know, the discrimination, the development of it, and trusting ourselves, trusting that we have the knowledge and the intuition to know that difference. And what usually makes that difficult is that a person doesn't have something they need in order to have the discrimination. In other words, they lack courage. And if they had courage, they would feel like they could discriminate. 
you know? So sometimes it's a matter of our hanging in there in the circumstance to develop what we need to develop to make that decision, to get to that clarity and that wisdom, peace. But I would definitely suggest that if we are facing a situation over and over and over and over, one of two things are happening. One, we're not clearly understanding what's going on. Or two, we need to change it, right? It needs to change. And uh, I think I'm, I default to the first. I default to let me see what I don't understand first. And for that, it's very useful to have like a good friend or someone that you can bounce that off of because a good friend is going to say to you, uh, I think you're a little bit off on this. You know, there may be more to this than what you see. Um, and I think through those pieces, we, we develop the necessary discrimination to know the difference. I don't know that that's an answer to your question, but um, it gets at some of the elements necessary. You know, the one thing I definitely suggest is don't act out of fear because that will never serve you or anybody else at all. But if you act, don't assume that your actions are fearful. You know, if, if there was a rabid, angry dog in here, walking out of the room would not be fearful. It would be intelligent. You know? I mean, unless you have that rare, sagacious quality to sit here and soothe the dog with your presence. <laughs> then I'm saying, by all means, just hang in here. The rest of us will leave. You I know? noticed with myself in particular situations <clears throat> where I notice my uh, inherent uh, fear from con conditioning or from uh, what's the uh, when uh, okay somebody comes into the space I scan for safety because I'm not sure so that's that's in my DNA yep. you know especially as a woman. Scan for am I safe here because of what's coming this way? Mm -hmm. So I, I watch myself do that, mm -hmm. and it's not like I'm making I can make then a clear decision because I see myself uh, do the subconscious thing of uh, yep. I'm missing the word. Yep. Uh, it's not a, it's just something that happens. Yep. Like an instinct. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I'm, I lose my words sometimes. Uh, so uh, I can now notice that I'm doing that instinctual thing at the moment and then make a choice from there. Yes. Sort of just following the instinct and saying, exactly. I am not safe here, I gotta get out of here. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's an important point because, uh, you know, just as much as we have biological conditioning, which is there to keep you safe, to avoid dangerous situations, we have psychological conditioning and they're not the same thing. A dangerous situation to your body is not the same situation as a danger to your sense of self. Right? If someone, if someone doesn't like you, that doesn't amount to physical danger to flee. Right? I know that's not what you're saying, but, but that's something we also have to be able to discriminate is the difference between... Because all too often people confuse their instinct with their intuition and they're not the same. Because instinct is biologically created and plays out in our psyche, whereas intuition is not biologically oriented at all. Or if it is, it's only loosely so. Um, and so that's an important piece, to be able to discriminate between what my instinctual responses are to life 
and what is actual. And, you know, just in the way you're describing, you know, so you can look and see, oh, I'm instinctually reacting to this environment as danger, but I'm not in danger. It's okay. It's okay. I can actually hang in this situation. Yes. And it feels uncomfortable because it's not something I've done before. But when I yes. do it, it's like, oh, that wasn't that hard at all. Exactly. And that's where, that's beautiful, that's, that's where our true self is born into manifestation. Because you realize you have this technique, let's, let's just compare it to mommy and daddy, I know it's more complicated than that. You have this technique, which is your dad, this technique, which is your mom. What's your technique? Because your technique is the authentic response you'll have to what's in front of you rather than defaulting to this strategy or this strategy as your own. And you have to kind of be willing to shake there because it's new. Like, yes. I don't know. Unfamiliar ground. And so it yep. shaky yep. the first time. Yep. But there's something magnificent that, that stems out of that, which is that's your Christ self. That's where you're giving birth or resurrection to that in you, which is completely outside of past. You're giving birth to something brand new, and it's scary as you do that, but it's necessary. Yeah, this resonates really hard because I'm here with a much simpler plan of just learning how to sit still and not. Mm. Because I cannot do it. Mm. I cannot do it. Mm. And every now, every time I've been still for too long, I freak out and I move again. And it's just one of those things where it's like, if you keep doing it, eventually you're going to sit still for too long and it's going to be this interesting thing. I don't know what it's like. Uh -huh. But it resonates in that same way. Like, Absolutely. Let's try something new. I have never sat without moving for more than a few minutes at a mm. time. It's, like, it's that challenge that you're looking for. You're looking for that way to sit in your raft without anything bothering you. Yes. And it's definitely harder than it seems much harder, but the second that it happens, you're like, that wasn't that hard. Right, right. So there it is, right? In a really good, simple form, like going into the fire, going into what's uncomfortable, going into what's hard, and refusing to back away from it, you know? And if we do that, if we expose ourselves again and again to that unfamiliar territory, just as you're saying, something beautiful begins to happen out of that. That's exactly what we need with ourselves, just that. I think there's a challenge in the space that I'm aware of, which is uh, letting your partner sit in their fear without oh, yeah. adding charge to it. Yeah. Yep. Yep. 
Yep. <laughs> you know, just as much as we want to interfere when we're suffering, we tend to want to interfere with another. I'm always a little bit, in fact, I need to develop some kind of form for this because oftentimes in groups, especially groups that spend a lengthy time together, like in a retreat, inevitably something happens for someone and there's usually at least 20% of the people in the group want to rush in and help that person. They want to save them when they want to rescue them. And I'm always, you know, I need to build a fence around those people so nobody can get to them. Because the best thing to do with someone who's struggling, oh, I don't want to put it this way, that sounds too extreme. We need to be able to let people encounter their own suffering. That's an important thing. You know, it's not an act of violence to let someone encounter their own suffering. It's an act of kindness. That doesn't mean you make their suffering worse, because that would be violent. But there's value in letting a person struggle, just as there's value in you struggling with what you need to struggle with, right? Now, it's a careful dance to be there for someone who's struggling, because sometimes they do need some assistance and help. And sometimes they don't, you know? Which, of course, in an intimate relationship or a relationship between a parent and child or brother and sister or good, you know, long-time friends, that can be really skewed. It can be really confusing about when's the right time to help and when's the right time to leave them alone. But hopefully we acquire some wisdom along the way. And I think what you're saying is part of that is like, you know, there's wisdom in letting somebody deal with their struggle. You know? Student teacher. Yeah. 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 I'm always trying to pull my wife out of her raft when she's struggling, and it never ends well. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. I'm like, but my intentions were good. Right. I mean, me if nothing else, our best ally is to listen. Yeah. Because it's amazing what can happen, not only in listening for yourself, but how people tend to resolve their own dilemmas when we're listening. You know, which I'm not good at, so I'm here telling that to myself. <laughs> Other things? Well, you know, it's always really nice to come together and, and share in these practices and dialogue and such. And, you know, um, wherever we happen to be on the journey, there's something useful right in front of us. And so I'm glad that we get to come together and share in that, in this form together. So thank you for the things you're sharing, the questions, the comments, your insights. It's really valuable to us all. Namaste. I'm preparing to unfold a few um, new things and maybe some, hopefully in the next year, several new offerings and such. If you're not on our email list and you want to be, let, let us know or write your email address down. I'm happy to, to keep you in, informed of what's unfolding.